y'all would, take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Good to see y'all this morning. How are you? Good. That's good. I don't know how you're supposed to answer that all at once, and so I guess I'm going for a community fine, right? But anyway, I hope you are doing well. If not, we can talk after service. Get up with me. We'll, we'll pray together. But uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, as we continue walking through uh, this letter from the Apostle Paul uh, to the people in Corinth, as we continue talking about what it means to be made new, what it means for the old to be gone and for the new to come. As we do that this morning, we're, we're going to talk about something that you may not think very often about. Uh, we're going to talk some about spiritual warfare. I, I know in our culture, typically, when we talk about spiritual warfare, that we immediately think of something like The Exorcist, right, with people climbing on walls. I haven't seen that movie necessarily, but I, I've seen enough uh, about it that that's typically what we think about. But, but when we come to the letter of uh, uh, the Second Corinthians, what we find is not so much uh, holy water and things spoken in Latin. What, what we find is that Paul is writing to a group of people who have been uh, basically taken captive by, by ideas that are against God. That they have been taken captive by things that have led them down terrible paths, that have led them to begin to believe that Paul himself, the man sent by God to them with the message of the gospel, is a liar and a con artist, a thief who didn't care about anything but their money. And, and that, to the point that the church had, had hurt Paul deeply, they had allowed people to stand up in their congregation and accuse him to his face without any sort of uh, retribution. And, and so Paul's not only hurt deeply as a result of this, but he is... He, he is fearful for their souls because if they don't believe Paul, then they don't believe the gospel. And if they don't believe in Christ, I mean, what's the next step for them? And so bigger than any personal offense he takes, he has this deep-seated uh, fear of what's going to happen to them next. And so when we come to Second Corinthians in chapter 10, this last section of this letter, uh, what we see is Paul begin to speak with passion that we don't really see almost anywhere else in the New Testament. In fact, it's so harsh and it's so direct and it's so emotional that some of it is even really hard to understand as he begins to just unload on these people, as he begins to, to share his heart with these people. And, and what we're going to see this morning more than anything else when it comes to spiritual warfare is that spiritual warfare is, is a, a battle for the heart and for our mind. It's a battle for what we think about Jesus. Because, guys, I, I don't know if you realize this or not, but what you think about Jesus, well, that changes everything about what you do. What you think about Jesus is the most important thing in your life. It is the most important aspect of who you are. What you think about Jesus, what you believe about Jesus is more important than where you work. It's more important than who you marry. It's more important than how you raise your children. It's more important than what you wear, for sure. It's more important than your bank account. What you believe about Jesus Christ is actually the most important aspect of who you are. Because what you believe about Jesus will determine everything you do. And to, to show you what I mean here, let's look at verse 2 of 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul writing to these people, he, he writes these words. He says, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that if the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure 
devotion to Christ. Will you pray with me this morning? Father, I pray that as we look at your word, God, as we hear from you and we hear your heart for us, God, I pray that we would understand how important it is for us to think rightly about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. God, that we wouldn't be led astray by false teachers and false prophets, but God, that we would ever so so more in, in our life, Lord, that we'd be more devoted to you. God, that we would understand more of your truth and more of who you are. And God, that we would walk out of here today loving you more than we have ever loved you, walking more closely than we've ever walked with you, oh God. God, we need you need your help in this, these moments. We need your help as we attempt to follow after you, as we attempt to, to think rightly about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Paul is sharing with these people his deepest fears for them. He's sharing with them his deepest concern for them. He, he calls it a godly jealousy, a divine jealousy over them. Because he says, listen, I have introduced you to the one person, your one husband, Jesus Christ. And, and for you to walk with anyone else is to commit spiritual adultery, is to become an idolater, is to walk with someone other than the one who created you, other than the one who made you. It's the same thing that we've been talking about over and over again as we walk through this letter, this idea that Jesus demands that we worship him and him alone. And, and so Paul says, I'm afraid. I'm afraid for your future because I feel like you're going to be deceived. I'm afraid for your future because I feel like you're going to be led down the wrong path as you are deceived about who Jesus is. You notice in verse 3 he says, But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And he goes on and talks about how somebody may come in trying to teach them a different Jesus, teach them a different gospel. Well, why does he bring Eve into this? Why does he bring up Eve in the way that she was deceived? How was Eve deceived? <coughs> well, if you remember back all the way in Genesis chapter 3, Paul takes us all the way back to the very beginning of the world. And he reminds us, first, that God created the world and that he created the world good. That he made all things and he made all things good and he's looking over his creation and he, put, he creates man, he calls him Adam, he puts Adam in the garden and he says it's good and then he looks around and he says, but man is alone and it is not good that man should dwell alone. The first thing that God talks about in creation of not being good is the fact that man is alone. Man shouldn't be alone. Man needs someone to help him. Man needs a companion. Man needs someone to dwell with him. And so he takes a rib from Adam and he creates Eve. And so he, he, he creates Eve and then, uh, tell him I'll call him back later, but anyway, so he creates Eve and, and he puts Eve in the garden with Adam and he says, here is your helpmeet, here is your companion, here is the person who will be with you uh, in this world, to walk with you in this world. And so here they are, they're in the garden, they're living in this perfect world. No taxes, can you imagine no taxes, no bills, no cancer, no death, no, nothing that is bad. Uh, they have zero worries. And God says, hey, you can have anything you want in this perfect world. You can have anything you want in this perfect garden, except for one thing. There's this tree in the middle of the garden, it's called the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from that tree. If you eat from that tree, you're going to die. So don't eat from this one tree in the middle of the garden. So what, of course, do they want to do? 
It's sort of like that button that has a big sign that says, do not push, right? We're like, that one thing, that's what I want. The one thing God told me not to have, that's what I want. Satan slithers up next to Eve and says, hey, Eve, I heard that God told you you can't eat of any tree in the garden. He twists God's word. He, he, he begins to try and plant in Eve's mind and in her heart that God is not good, that God is not taking care of them. Eve, I, I thought God was good. I thought he put you here in paradise. He put all these beautiful trees and he won't let you eat of any of them. You know, Satan twists God's word. He said you can't eat of that one tree. Satan takes it and says he doesn't want you to have any good times. He doesn't want you to have any fun. He doesn't want you to have any freedom. He doesn't want you to have anything good. He, he's just clamping it down. God is not good. And so Eve says, no, 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 no. That's not what he says. He says we can eat of anything but the one tree. And then she adds in her own thing and we can't touch it or else we will die. Well, how unfair of God. To put one tree in a garden, a perfect garden that you can't eat. But you can have anything else but that one tree. God, that is just not right. That's sort of our attitude sometimes, isn't it? God gives us the world and he tells us to enjoy it as long as we enjoy it the way that he has called us to. Because he, he knows the truth that if we don't enjoy it the way he has called us to, what happens? Well, it leads to destruction. It leads to problems in our life. God says, you can enjoy the world, but you do it according to my standards and according to my law and according to my rules, and you can enjoy it well. You don't enjoy it according to my rule. You step outside of my rule, outside of my law, and there will be consequences. What happens in our lives, guys? We listen to Satan tell us God is not good. God doesn't want you to have fun. God hasn't given you what you need. You need to step out of his law and do whatever you want, and we begin to do that. <coughs> and next thing you know, we're experiencing the consequences of our sin, we say, man, God, I can't believe you let this happen. I can't believe you allowed all these things to happen in my life. When in fact, what it is, is we've stepped outside of his law, outside of his rule. And so Eve gets in her mind that uh, God is not good. And then so Satan says to her, he says, listen, uh, you won't die if you eat the fruit of that tree. God's lying to you. He's just, he's just telling you that because he doesn't want you to be like him. He doesn't want you to know the truth. He doesn't want you to understand what he understands. He's holding back from you, Eve. He doesn't want you to see the truth. And so the, the two things that Satan's trying to do here is he's trying to convince, God, uh, convince Eve that God is not good and that God is not true. Because if he can get in her mind that God is not good and that God is not true, well, he can convince her of anything. He can convince her to do whatever he wants her to do. Because if we don't believe God is good and true, then what ground do we have to stand on? Where do we go from there? We go where Eve went. We're deceived like she's deceived. Listen to Genesis 3, 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good and that it was as a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took up its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Poor old Adam, right? I mean, he's just, a, he's just along for the ride. I always tell my wife, you know, where, where would we be without women, right? In the garden. And, and she responds, yeah, but you'd be alone. And keep saying that, you're going to get black. Anyway, but anyway, so, but God tells them, don't eat of this one tree. If you eat of this true tree, it will destroy you. It will separate you from me. Satan says, God's a liar. He's not good. Eve says, maybe Satan's true. Maybe Satan's telling the truth. So I, rather than listening to what God has said about this tree, I'm going to give it my own perspective. 
I'm going to look at it through the lens of, I can't really trust God. I need to think about it for myself. I need to make up my own mind. And so she looks at it and she says, you know what? It looks pretty good. And you know what? I think I'd like to know what God knows. And you know what? I think I can make my own choices, my own decisions, and make up my own mind about the world. I don't need God's Word to make up my mind about the world. I'm smart enough to do that on my own. So I think I'm going to make a choice here, and I'm going to eat of the fruit of that tree. Do you see the progression, guys? When we begin to doubt that God is good, and we begin to doubt that God is true, then we're left to make up our own mind about the world. We're left to make up our own truths. Does that sound familiar at all? As we look at our culture, we look at the world around us, where everything everybody says is true, where everybody can say whatever they want to say, and that has to be true, where there is no such thing as truth. Eve was deceived because she believed that she couldn't trust God and that God is not good. And so Paul writes to the Corinthians, and he says, don't let Satan trick you. Don't let Satan deceive you the same way that he deceived Eve. Don't let him make you believe that God can't be trusted and that God is not good. Because if he does, then you'll begin to think about Jesus the way you want to think about him rather than what the Bible says about him. You'll begin to make up your own Jesus. That's what he goes on and says. People are going to come in and try and tell you that Jesus is not who I've told you he is. People are going to come in and try to pervert the gospel, the good news about Jesus, and tell you things that are not true. And he even goes on at the end of this chapter, and I'm deviating from, from our point here this morning, but, but when you come down to verse 14 of chapter 11, he says, And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. In other words, Paul is saying... It shouldn't be really a shock that people who serve Satan lie to you. It shouldn't be a shock that people try to deceive you who are on the side of the devil. Guys, spiritual warfare ultimately is a question of what we think about Jesus. Spiritual warfare ultimately is a question about what we believe about the gospel. It's about what we believe about who Jesus is and what he calls us to. Paul understands this very clearly because he's coming out of a culture that was anti-God and anti-Christ that claimed to be for God. As someone who believed that the law could save him, he's coming out of that and he sees that as the deception of Satan. And so he's pushing back on these people in Corinth and saying, don't let anyone deceive you. The gospel is still the gospel. I don't care what these people say. I don't care how good they preach. They are not telling the truth. And so I just want to give us this morning some principles that we can apply from Paul and from his life uh, to, to combat the lies of Satan. So if you would go back with me to verse 1 of chapter 10, and we're going to run through these uh, fairly quickly. First, I want us to see that if we're going to, to combat Satan, we first need the humility of Christ. That's some kind of initial thing as far as spiritual warfare goes, right? But that's exactly how Paul begins. He says, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. He doesn't begin with dropping the hammer on these people. He could have. I mean, this man was empowered with the authority of God. Like he was called by God to tell the churches what to do and what not to do. He had apostolic authority. He could have come in and just blasted them. 
But he comes in and he entreats them. He begs them. He pleads with them by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. He says, I want to be like Jesus as I come in and, and speak to you about these things. He doesn't come in uh, guns blazing. He comes in in humility. Guys, can I, can I encourage you this morning? Rather than looking for a fight with everyone who disagrees with us, let's go in with some meekness some gentleness, rather than always trying. Have you ever noticed that? How people just want to argue over everything and they want to fight over everything? Like you, I mean, every time you look at Facebook, somebody's arguing about something, right? And it's not actually trying to get somebody to think more about Jesus. It's actually just trying to convince them that you're right and they're wrong. It has nothing to do with Christ very often, but it seems like we spend a lot of time complaining and arguing about people who disagree with us when we should be approaching them with the meekness and the gentleness of Jesus. He, Jesus did not come in meanly. He came in gently. Paul, he does not begin with the hammer. He does not begin with punching people in the face. He begins gently. He begins with sharing with them uh, the good news. He begins meekly. And, and we, we, could, we could learn something from that instead of allowing people to get under our skin. What happens when we get in an argument with someone? Do we learn more of Jesus do we show them more of Jesus? We show them more of ourselves, usually, don't we? More of our own attitude. As some have said, we generate a lot of heat, but not much light. You know, we're really good at, at arguing and defending our position when very little has to do with Jesus at all. And so we have to be careful to not be looking for a fight. Because that doesn't lead us to knowing more of Jesus. It doesn't lead them to knowing more of Jesus. The question is, is this going to uh, uh, promote Jesus or is this going to promote ourselves but that doesn't mean we don't fight that doesn't mean we don't stand up for the truth about Christ listen to verse 2 I beg of you that when I am present I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh he says I'm begging you that we can settle this out of court I'm begging you that we can take care of it before I get there it's sort of like, you know, when your kids are in the other room and they're doing something they know they're not supposed to, and you've said a couple of times, y'all better stop. You better stop. You don't want me to come in there. You had better stop. If I come in there, it's not going to be good. In my house, if I come in there, it's not going to be a mama spanking. It's going to be a daddy spanking. And that, that gets their attention, right? Je Josiah told me a while back that I wasn't allowed to spank anymore, that only mommy could spank. And I asked why, and he was like, well, because mommy spanks so soft. And like... <laughs> Uh-huh, that's right. That's why, why they listen when I speak, right? Not that they do, they don't. That's a total. But anyway, but, but, but Paul says, listen, guys, when I show up, I ain't bringing a mama spanking, I'm bringing a daddy spanking. So I want us to take care of this before I do show up. I want us to have peace and I want us to have reconciliation. But that doesn't mean I'm not going to skirt this issue. Sometimes I feel like we think that if we upset someone, we have failed. I want you to think about this. Paul is not writing to the world. He's writing to Christians. Sometimes I feel like we're okay with arguing with everyone in the world and upsetting and offending everyone in the world, but our biggest fear is that someone in the church is going to be upset. We're more afraid of offending our fellow brother or sister in Christ than we are of God. When it comes to matters of the gospel, it comes to matters of who Jesus is, make sure that we make that clear. We're not talking about preference. We're talking about the gospel. 
We should be okay with offending whoever we need to offend to stand up for the truth about who Jesus is. Not preference, not our tradition, but who Jesus is. And so uh, we, we see that Paul approaches them with great humility, and he also approaches them with the right weapons. And so first we approach them with the meekness of Christ. Secondly, with, we use the right weapons. We see this in verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Paul's speaking like a warrior here. He's speaking like a soldier. And he's saying, we are not bringing a knife to a gunfight. I'm not bringing a mama whooping when a daddy whooping is needed. I'm not bringing a Nerf gun when, when what is needed is a nuke. But what he is saying is, it, you may uh, assume that I'm uh, walking worldly. I'm not walking worldly, but I am a flesh and blood. I am a, a man, but I need you to know I don't fight like a man. I don't fight like a mere person. Listen to his, his uh, warfare. He says, the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh. They're not human weapons. They have divine power, supernatural power to destroy strongholds. He says, the weapons I'm bringing, they, they have the power that men can't possess, the, the power to destroy fortresses, to destroy bases, to destroy closely guarded castles, if you will. Weapons of the flesh would have, would have been the cute little sayings that his opponents were bringing. They would have been the charismatic nature of their speakers. They would have been the, the skill that the preachers used to share the gospel. It's the same skills that, you know, that guy who convinced you to buy that car that you didn't really need used against you the last time. You know, that, that's the sort of skills that Paul is talking about. He says, that's not what I'm bringing. What I'm bringing is something far more powerful than the ability to speak well. What I'm bringing is something far more powerful than the same tactics that Satan used to convince Eve. What I'm bringing are weapons of a divine nature. You say, man, what are these weapons that destroy fortresses? He says they destroy fortresses, arguments, every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and, and takes captive all of our thoughts to obey Christ. What is the weapons that Paul is talking about here? He's not talking about fighting against people. He's talking about fighting against thought patterns that cause us to go against God. When we read about these, we think, man, these must be powerful. What is it? Like, is it reciting the Lord's Prayer backwards? What, I mean, what, what is he talking about here? What, what special thing can he show me that I can win this battle? He's simply talking about the truth of God's Word. He's simply talking about the truth that we find in God's Word. Guys, I don't know if you know this, but this is the weapon that we have been given. The weapon of the truth of who God is, the wisdom that we find in His Word is what we need. We have book after book after book on Christian living and all of that, and that's great, and we should read those things, but ultimately the power that we find is in His Word. You see, because the problem is, we allow Satan to come in and develop strongholds in our life. Bad ways of thinking about the world around us. Things that cause us to, to do things that we ought not do. To buy into his lies. And the only thing that can blow those things up, the only thing that can blow up those strongholds, is God's word. It's truth. Because what, what happens to us is this. Satan sneaks up and he whispers in our ear, if God really loved you, he'd let you do that. If God really cared for you, He'd want you to be happy. He'd want you to do what you want to do. 
I mean, if he, if he really loved you and he really wanted you to do that, I mean, he, he wouldn't have made you this way if he didn't want you to act that way. Or can you really trust his word? Can you really depend on what he says in his word? Is it really dependable? And next thing you know, rather than approaching your life and approaching the things in your life according to God's word, you approach it according the same way that Eve approached the, the tree in the garden and you begin to say, eh, it looks pretty good. I don't know what all the fuss is about after all. Surely that will never happen to me. Surely God's warning here is not for me. I mean, when he wrote this, surely he wasn't thinking about me. Surely I'm an exception to the rule. Surely this struggle that these other people have won't be my struggle. What lies is Satan filling your mind with this morning? Attack them with the power of God's word. And guys, and it may not be, when we hear this, we automatically think, you know, these outward moral failures that, that we see in some, some, so many people, other people's lives, right? Never in our own life, always in other people's lives. But what if the problem this morning is not something everyone else can see? What if the problem is something only you can see? What if it's pride? Look in verse 10. And, I, and I'll finish up here. But I, I want you to look at verses 10 with me and follow it. He says, For they say... His letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Let a, such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. You hear what Paul is saying here? They're calling me a telephone tough guy, but when they show up, they're going to find out that I'm not just a telephone tough guy. Like they think that I'm just really good at, at typing stuff out on Facebook. What they don't know is when I show up, what I've been talking about is what I'm going to do. Like you're about to find out the truth about me, is what he's saying. He's saying, y'all don't understand. I, I'm not just all talk. I'm not just blowing smoke. When I show up, you are actually going to experience something you don't want to experience. When I come in there, it's not going to be good. But, but he goes on, and, and I want you to see the pride of these people that he's, he's fighting against. He says, Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves. Later he would say, We don't even compare to these super apostles that you people love so much. These people are so good at preaching. These people are so wonderful, you know, that they have all these ministries going. These people who everyone praises. He, he says, Well, I don't even want to compare myself to them. And he says this, he says, those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. What he says here is, it does you no good to compare yourself to someone else. It does you no good to compare yourself to the people around you. If you look down at verse 17, he says the same thing again. He says, let no one who boasts, boast in the Lord, for it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. He says that these people who are measuring themselves against the folks around them, well, they're foolish. They're without understanding. To be without understanding, to put it nicely, is to be stupid. I, I don't know how else to put it. That's what he's t telling them. He's saying they don't understand anything about anything. They are living in the dark. And what he means is it's just because you have a bigger house, you have nicer clothes, you look more financially stable, you look morally better than the people around you, that doesn't mean you're right with God. As we talk about all the time, just because you're better than your neighbor doesn't mean you're good with God. 
Like your neighbor may be a really terrible jerk, but just because you're less of a jerk doesn't mean God loves you more. It doesn't work that way. He says those who are trying to compare themselves to the people around them in order for them to think that they're okay with God are without understanding. They're living in the dark. Guys, if you believe that because what you think is what everybody around you thinks, therefore it must be true, you're a fool. Truth is not found by public consensus. Somewhere along the lines we've gotten this idea that unless everybody agrees with us, we must be wrong. The truth is the truth, whether five people believe it or five million. Like, it doesn't matter how many people say this is true. What matters is that God says it's true. So why are we so worried about what everybody else thinks? Why are we so worried about our, uh, our comparison to the people around us? Who cares? What matters is, is what God thinks. What matters is, is what God says. Why are we looking to the world around us that God says that, that these people around us, they're under the, the, the blindness that Satan, the God of this age, has given them. Why, why are we allowing them to dictate to us what we should and shouldn't do? Why are we allowing public consensus to decide what is right and what is wrong? When we should be following God's Word. Just because you think you're better than the people around you doesn't mean that you're good enough for God. Maybe one of the saddest conversations I've ever had, guys, is with the... I hadn't been a pastor very long, but I went and visited this fella who was, I mean, probably one of the most decent people I've ever met. And I was sharing with him the gospel, and he said, well, why do I need that? Why do I need Jesus to tell me what to do? And I shared some of my story. I shared, you know, where I was and where God brought me out of. I shared all the you know, the the ways that God had changed me. And he said, yeah, but I've never done any of that. I've always been a pretty good person. I take good care of my family, take good care of my kids. I mean, in fact, this guy was, (laughs) it was because of him that we had seen an entire family. I mean, we're talking like 10 or 15 people come to know Christ and be baptized and all this because he told us they needed Jesus. Like, I mean, that was this guy, but he said, "I, I don't need Jesus. I'm good. And that's basically where we left it. Because compared to the people around him, he was good. Very good. He was a good person. He'd never done anything that bad compared to the people around him. But Paul says here, it's not the one who commends himself, it's not the one who pats himself on the back, it's not the one who compares himself to the people around him and says, I'm good, that is approved by God. It's the one the Lord commends. We don't compare ourselves to the people around us, guys. We compare ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. How good is Jesus? Well, he'd be perfect. What did God tell us we have to be in order to get into heaven? Perfect. I don't know one person who's perfect. I don't know one person who's measured up. Not one of us. And so if you're here this morning, you say, I don't really need this gospel stuff because I'm good. I mean, just look at the person I'm sitting next to, right? If you're sitting next to your spouse, no, I'm just kidding. But anyway, because we know our spouse is better than anybody, don't we? And we, we can see their imperfections and they can see ours. But when we compare ourselves to the person of Jesus, what do we find? He is perfect and we are not. He has, he has done everything the Father told him to do and we have not. He's offered us salvation that only we can only find through him. Don't let Satan deceive you this morning into thinking that because you're better than other people that you're good enough for heaven. 
Because you're not. It's only through the forgiveness that's offered through the blood of Jesus Christ shed in your place, His righteousness given in your place, that you could ever experience eternal life with Him. If you've never trusted on Christ, if you've never asked Him to save you, never asked Him to forgive you, would you ask Him to forgive you this morning? Would you quit buying into the lie that, that God is not on your side, that God does not have your best at heart? Would you quit buying into the lie that God can't be trusted and that He's not good? Because He is. If you're here this morning and you are a believer, but you have slid away from the truth because of the lies of Satan, if you've begun to commit spiritual adultery, where you've begun to run after the things of this world instead of after Christ, will you repent? Did you know the gospel is as much for you as it is for anybody? That we need forgiveness just as much now as we did yesterday? Would you return to Christ this morning and say, Lord, I'm sorry. I've allowed all this other junk to get in the way. I've allowed the idea that you are not good, the idea that you can't be trusted to get in the way, and I've ran after other things. Would you ask them to forgive you? Do you know that the sacrifice Jesus made on the cross is more than enough to pay for what you've done? Believer or not believer, we believe on Jesus this morning. Will you trust on him? If you, if you are a believer, would you turn back to him this morning? If you would, stand with us. And as you stand, I'm going to pray. And after I pray, we're going to sing. And as I sing, if God has spoken to you this morning, would you come? God, I thank you. Lord, I thank you that you are good. God, I thank you that we can trust you. God, I thank you that even when the world around us tells us all sorts of lies, we know that you and you alone can be trusted. God, I pray that your goodness, your love, your mercy would flow out of us this, this week as we, as we walk with you, as we uh, walk for you, oh God. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you come as we sing?